Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Housing is the most pressing issue in Lane County, and the fact has been compacted with the shelter-in-order place and COVID-19. Today on the Spent the Rent podcast, we are joined by a man who has made it his life work to combat houselessness and find ways to create affordable housing for both the unemployed and the working poor. Coming up next on the Spent the Rent podcast, housing in Lane County with Thomas Fiorelli. Welcome to the Spent the Rent podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today talking about housing in Lane County is Thomas Fiorelli. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Patrick. First, I want to give a shout out to my sponsors, uh, Oregon Cashflow Pro, giving free money management advice on YouTube. Uh, So check him out. He's been doing really good stuff during this uh, coronavirus shutdown and some good advice. So check that out. And then also Hewlett Artistry for cinematography and photography. You can go to my show notes or you can go to my website, strpod.com slash sponsors, and you can click on their logos and you can see information on what they're all about. So check them out. I'm also going to be doing an episode coming up with Matthew Hewlett of Hewlett Artistry. So we'll get to know more about what it is he does. Anyway, so we're here, we're going to talk about the most pressing issue in Lane County, housing, and that is only getting more serious with this whole shelter-in-place order. Thomas, tell us a little bit about what you do. So you are a PhD student in landscape architecture at the University of Oregon, master's degree in public administration at the University of Oregon, and your background primarily is in land use and public policy, and then right now you are a fellow at the University of Oregon. You can explain that to us. Yeah, that's correct, Patrick. Uh, so, so my background is originally uh, in planning and public policy. So, um, uh, I started out my my academic trajectory as uh, looking at how we we build our cities and um, what we do with the spaces that are around us, and that quickly got me interested in uh, the financial side of things, particularly in housing. I went on to a master's program and looked at uh, particularly public policy and the economics behind that. Um, And so, yeah, so what I'm doing right now in landscape architecture is trying to identify uh, places throughout the county right now, but really anywhere in the country where we have these uh, vacant properties that aren't being utilized uh, in an efficient way. And there's lots of things we can do with those properties. The most pressing issue right now that I can think of uh, is housing. And in a lot of ways, uh, we have transitionary housing opportunities for these homes, for these spaces, but also opportunities to build homes. Uh, and so those are some of the things I'm looking at right now uh, in my research. It's cool because the, we've talked about this. It's funny, I've, a little back history. I've known you for going on 10 to 15 years. I'm not sure if it's 15 or 10. No, I'm wild. 
we've we've crossed paths, walked by each other, but you know, in today's world, both of us had headphones on, and it lately. But I used to cut your hair when you worked at or when I worked at Don's Barbershop on West Eleventh years ago. Yeah, and then uh, back the, in those days, you were working with Peter DeFazio. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, I, I spent um, an election cycle working for Peter DeFazio, and I have volunteered for him multiple times since. So you've been very passionate about different, you know, issues about helping. In the in the sh- in the intro of the audio of this, I said that your passion is helping the uh, underemployed and the working poor, and you and I have very similar values with that. And so uh, one of the things that's really cool is when we recrossed paths and you came into my new barbershop, you were like, well, I just came in for a haircut and then saw you were working here. This is really cool on campus. Uh, we got to talking about what you're doing with housing and whatnot. And the cool thing is, is that uh, you have a passion for helping people that are struggling financially, but also ways that we can make it to where people aren't forgotten that are actually doing well. You know, the ways that it can benefit everybody. And that's something that really needs to be addressed because there's this divide right now in the city or in Lane County. It's, it's, it's like working people versus the poor, you know, that they're trying to pit people against each other. One year ago, almost to the date, I had Daniel Ivey on the podcast and we talked about Yimby, which is yes in my backyard. And we're going to get into that a little bit about what that means, just in case people are unfamiliar, because in one year, a lot has changed and the podcast has grown. So Let's really, first of all, talk about why housing is such a huge issue. One of the things you had mentioned uh, off air is that housing has just become expensive, you know, so let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, across the entire West Coast, it's it's not just Eugene or Lane County or even Oregon that is facing this housing crisis issue in terms of affordability. Um, it's, it's really everywhere from, you know, the Southern border all the way, uh, up through, through Washington. And a, a lot of the affordability issue has to do with, uh, the fact that we've been so successful in a lot of ways across the West coast in creating high tech sectors where there are really great jobs and we're drawing people from literally all over the world, uh, to move to these areas. But then what we end up with um, is the same sort of supply and demand market issues that we see where uh, the supply um, begins to not necessarily decrease, it's just not increasing uh, at the rate that the demand is increasing. And we see a lot of these pressures as a result, uh, leading policymakers at the state level and at different local levels to try to, to deal with that issue um, in different ways that are sometimes uh, fractured and, and not always um, uh, working in a way that where they actually complement one another. Right. And then like that's kind of what I was getting at where uh, a lot of times people, when they think about the economy, for example, they don't really, you look at factors that are not realistic, like the stock market, you know, because we'll, we'll see, we're seeing right now with, there's what, we don't know the exact number, but it could be as, as high as 20% of the country is unemployed. And the stock market, the total number is like still at 24,000 or whatever. It's doing well, <laughs> you know, like that part of it is doing well. So if that's the metric that we go by for the economy, then it's misleading. So like you said, when you have these opportunities for tech growth all up the West Coast, you have all these people coming here that are used to paying, you know, you know, people in San Francisco that move up to Eugene for school, they're used to this exorbitant amount of rent. So the, the university knows that. And then that's what they charge. And we see places, one of the big ones that sticks out to me is the 35 Club Road. 
property that went up and and I, I mean it, it's frustrating you know there's their tagline i've talked about it a little bit on the show their tagline is when luxury meets location you know and it's like yeah but we're we're in a town where we need affordable housing and then i've looked at the rates on that and it's like 3500 bucks for a two-bedroom apartment you know and that's insane i think y'all might have lost your audio uh can you no, hear me you, oh there you're, you're good you're good okay. so that you know stuff like that the city has done some things to, to require for buildings like that, that are high end to, to include some low income housing on it. Is that correct? Um, that's, that's not always the case. Uh, in particular, yeah, when, when we see, um, when we see housing for, for students, for example, student housing has been pumping out rapidly. Oh my gosh over the past decade and a half. Uh, and that's largely because of the, the Great Recession, where lots of people lost their jobs and went back to school. And so we saw enrollment rates at both the university level, uh, as well as at the sort of junior college, community college level skyrocket. And schools were, were doing very well um, at a time when lots of other industries were not. As a result of that, college towns like the University of Oregon started seeing a rapid increase in uh, student housing. Lots of these housing projects were built by developers who were either from out of the city or even outside the state. One of the things Eugene has in place uh, is something known as the multiple use property tax exemption, where effectively the city will give a 10 year tax break to a developer uh, for building something that has more than one use, more than one single family can live in it. So we're thinking multiple families. Uh, student housing fell under that category, which yeah. uh, you know gave a significant incentive for developers to build student housing. Um, and so what we started to see recently with the improvement in the economy, and I truly hope that it continues that direction, uh, we'll see with everything going on with the coronavirus. But what we've seen now is uh, enrollment rates are dropping at the university level. And the question becomes, what can we do with those student housing units when they're no longer in demand uh, by students? And there's yeah, and lots the, and, of debate. And the price on those units is so high that a, a working person in this town is not remotely interested in renting that. You know, right. you know, and the other know. thing is, even if we could bring the price down, that's kind of a mismatch for single families. If somebody yeah. has kids, those are really designed for, for people living in a shared co-living space. Right. Yeah. Cause at 38 years old, I'm not trying to live at 2125 Franklin where right. there's like, where there's a rooftop terrace or, you know, or whatever it is, that might be the different property, but yeah, I mean, that's definitely not designed for people like me. Uh, this is kind of off the topic, but one of the things we're, we're talking about Lane County, we're not just talking about Eugene. And I know that in Florence, there's a huge issue because people that are, it's a tourist area, typically right now it's kind of shut down. <laughs> but uh, the big issue with housing in Florence is uh, that people that are, you know, 20s, 30, early, early 30s that are service industry people, they can't find housing because there's only, there's not enough apartments. So that, so it's like across the, the, the county, there's different issues for each group. Now, I also wanted to talk about urban growth boundaries and urban growth boundaries in Eugene specifically has been a long fight. And explain to us what that is, UBA or uh, UGBs, urban growth boundaries. Sure. 
So uh, Oregon was the first state in the country to think about um, ways that we can control development uh, that balances human needs, what we need for cities uh, to develop and grow, balancing that with uh, protecting our environment and trying to make sure that we don't destroy farmland and forest land that's really valuable. And part of the reason Oregon is so beautiful and green today is because of that. And what, are they, what they did is they effectively passed a law, uh, and these, these lines are called urban growth boundaries, where they draw a line around uh, cities with over uh, a certain number of populations. So any city over uh, 4,000 people has to draw a line around it. And what that line effectively is, uh, is it's a political boundary and you shall not build outside of that line. So all of the underground infrastructure, electricity, <coughs> water, sewer, all of those things uh, that are very expensive to send miles and miles away from the city, uh, it's cheaper if we actually keep that contained within the urban growth boundary. Um, but what that does, though, is it constrains opportunities uh, for people who could afford housing if they could drive until they qualify, which is what we refer to that as, where uh, in a lot of places, most places around the country, you can just move to a bedroom community that basically uh, develops from the ground up enough miles away from the city center where people work uh, to where it becomes affordable and they simply drive a long distance, sometimes a half an hour to an hour uh, to work every day. But we, we don't do that in Oregon as much uh, because of these urban growth boundaries. Right. You know, and I think at one point Springfield was kind of considered that to Eugene, but at, at this point, Springfield is, we've done this ad nauseum on the podcast. We've talked about the growth of Springfield and the progress that it's made and the, and the successful leadership. But Springfield, people are like, no, 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 I'm working right here. It's cheaper to run a business. You know, there's just so many different factors, but that's a whole different issue. Yeah, that's, you know, back to what you were sp speaking about before, before I moved on, uh, talking about the, uh, wh what did you call it? You were talking about the uh, student housing and the multi-use uh, tax deduction. Yeah, the mukti. That's a really interesting thing about, you know, I wonder when the lobbying or whatnot by the developers, I'm not trying to throw them under the bus because they've got a job to do as well. But when they were putting that in, they knew how to, you know, jump through those holes. Cause I don't think that that are those hoops. I don't think that that was the intention of those tax deductions, you know, for, for, and it's just, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, so, that, that's a debate that's going to go on for, for some time, and it still does in this city. Um, yeah. So, uh, Lane Counter Shelter Feasibility Study. You had told me a little bit about that. There was a study done about the homelessness, and which is obviously a huge thing. And this is where I had mentioned before about how there's kind of this, the media or whoever it is locally is trying to pit the business, the working people, business owners and whatnot versus the homeless. And there is issues. Nobody's going to say that the homeless population or houselessness population doesn't have its issues. You know, there's, there's rampant addiction, but then again, not everybody that's homeless is an addict. And there's people that don't want help. And there's people that aren't from our area that come here because of the social services that we offer. Now, tell us a little bit about that study and what it found. So Lynn County, along with the city of Eugene, uh, partnered to commission uh, a feasibility study. So Lynn County um, is a community of care. So under the uh, 
under the federal government, any community that organizes uh, effectively any type of homeless services has to produce reports. They have to do point in time counts, which is what we just did in this past January. They do that every single January where they count the number of people uh, using a methodology that a lot of folks consider rather flawed uh, to identify the number of people in the area. And this feasibility study wanted to go a layer or several layers deeper than that. They wanted to try to understand what was really at the root of the problem itself. So they wanted to understand what groups of communities really exist in this big nebulous group that we sort of think of as the homeless homeless yes. population. So that's one thing they did. And the second thing they did is they took a real big deep dive into uh, how we uh, how we organize our systems, both ones that are controlled by the the local governments and and by the county as well as those that work as nonprofit organizations and provide supplemental services, they wanted to understand how coordinated all of those organizations were at addressing this problem. Um, so what's often, that feasibility study is often referred to as the TAC report, the TAC reports, and that TAC simply references the name of the consulting firm, the private consulting firm that the county and the city hired uh, to complete that feasibility study. And the feasibility study found that there was as many as 2,100 homeless residents. Is that is that the correct number? Yeah, that's correct. The number that they um, that they identified actually in the report. Now they wrote the report in December of 2018. So all the only number they had to go on was that static annual count. So we take the count every January. Uh, and in the 2018 report, basically they were writing it almost a month before they were going to take the next count. And so they quoted the 1,600 that were counted in oh, wow. the uh, 2019, January right. 2019 point in time count. The next month uh, following their report, this is before I believe they even presented to uh, the joint bodies, both county and city of Eugene, um, that number had gone up uh, by over 400 people to uh, over 2,000 total. Which is a huge percentage, you know, 15 to 20. I'm not a mathematician, but... Yeah, that's bad. Are you losing me? No, I can hear you, Pat. Okay, good. Uh, so let's see. Another thing we had kind of talked about with Groban, ur urban growth boundaries uh, is there's a desire to protect, you know, the, the marshlands and the wild and the wetlands and, and whatnot. But so green energy is something that's really important to you, I know. Uh, it talked to us a little bit about some of the proposals with green infrastructure for developers. So ways that they're talking about solutions, you know, uh, by building basically by having new, new properties and multifamily properties. Uh, we're going to get to it in a little bit more about, ooh, where did I write it? Uh, accessory dwellings, you know, and that's what NIMBYism, that's what they're trying to fight against. And that's what Daniel Ivey was all about with YIMBY. Yes, in my backyard is what YIMBY stands for. And I definitely recommend anybody listening to this to go back and listen to that episode. And also just type in Y-I-M-B-Y. And there's a lot of information. So YIMBY Lane County and Daniel Ivey's doing a lot of really great work trying to work towards that. But tell me a little bit before we get to that about green infrastructure and new properties and, and how that can be done, especially for tiny homes for the homeless and how that can be green energy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so quickly green infrastructure refers to uh, any sort of um, 
any any sort of design implementation that doesn't necessarily involve lots of concrete uh, and lots of taking stormwater and pollutants in our environment and sending them long distances through concrete uh, pipes. Green infrastructure refers to uh, keeping those those resources, water, uh, on site and basically remediating those pollutants that are in that water, oftentimes on uh, really, really damaged sites. So one of the things I was talking to you about uh, is my focus is uh, contaminated properties, places where you know, maybe there was a, a former industrial use or something like that. Um, so it's not necessarily new properties that I'm looking at. It's just underutilized and vacant properties that might even look like they've never been used before, but they have in, off, in many cases. Uh, they have had prior uses and there's sometimes underground pollutants. So what we can do with green infrastructure is we can design properties where we put in uh, stormwater drainage that goes to a, a natural sort of wetland looking area where it sits there and slowly goes into the soil where those pollutants are remediated, making the site healthier and safer, not only for the neighborhood in terms of aesthetics, they want their, their neighborhood to look nice, sure. but it also offers an opportunity to create some temporary housing some, uh, whether it be shelters or whether it be something transitional or whether it be something even on the, the permanent supported housing end, uh, like what we typically see with square one villages. Those are, for all intents and purposes, uh, permanent tiny homes like what we see over on Railroad Avenue here in the city of Eugene. Mm -hmm. I know, so you said transitional housing and uh, on Tuesday, I'm going to be sitting down with Chris McAllister, and we're going to talk about the memorial building in Springfield. They're doing a shelter for the houselessness, houseless people right now, uh, because with COVID, it's really difficult with social distancing, where you have these these areas that the city is allowing people to go. And in Springfield, you, there's there's anti or there's no camping rules. You know, you can't camp it, which this is a really difficult issue because as a citizen of Springfield, I like that to an effect to an to a, to a point because i think that you know the the trash and whatnot we're not ignoring that fact a lot of times when people talk about homeless the homeless population in a positive that they're like we need to help these people they ignore some of the downsides and some of the reasons that business owners are frustrated so this is where city government has to really tackle this two-pronged approach there's a there, you have to bridge the gap or bridge the divide but at, there's a lot of frustration i mean i know that i i work at the barbershop on campus and there's been multiple times when I come through the back door and someone has used it as a toilet you know and that is an issue that I always say it's like it's really hard to blame the poor you know this is a completely different issue but one of the things that frustrates me with a talking point people will get on completely off base but people will say you know it really makes me mad when I see people buying like steak or expensive food on a food card and I'm like that bothers you but you know you never complained about missiles <laughs> you know like you know so people's priorities are wrong and it's, I always kind of compare it to uh, like a, uh, the caste system, like in India, where you get, it's the poor telling the middle class to think that the, they're the, it's the wealthy telling the middle class that it's the poor that's causing the problems. And so it's, it's a huge issue. So what are some of the solutions in housing? Uh, there's two things that we had really, that you had let me, you know, you had told me that we can discuss. And one is to control the price and increase supply. 
So let's talk about controlling the price. How can local government go about that? Yeah. So, you know, when we try to when we try to put price controls on the housing market, typically what we see is unless it's a really big city, um, what we see happening is is those sorts of policies coming from the state level. Um, and so the the state of Oregon did put in the the rent control policy, or it's actually a policy preventing increases, uh, keeping it at a cap every single year. Most renters are very familiar uh, with that particular policy, and it was the first uh, in the nation to do something like that. Well, that's good. And so rent control is, I mean, you hear about that, you think of New York and places like that, where there's these, you know, places that they've, that if if it doesn't change hands completely, like it, I don't know how that all works, but I remember there was an episode of Friends about that. <laughs> but uh, uh, so increasing supply. So giving developers money, accessory dwellings, and then HB 2001, which is a single family zoning rule. Tell us about HB 2001. Yeah. So HB 2001 is the state's way of saying we are, it's, a, it's the first time in, in the country that any state has passed a law that said uh, single family zoning. Uh, we're removing that as a requirement for neighborhood areas in cities. So what we have typically is neighborhoods zoned where you can only build a, a home that fits one single family and it has the typical lot that we're all familiar with and somebody mows that grass every single week. Um, and they're pretty far spaced apart. Uh, nobody's telling developers that they can't build single family housing anymore. What has happened is that the state has gone to the cities and said, you no longer can prevent people from building uh, fourplexes. So what HB 2001 does is it allows a developer or even a homeowner who decides it's time to rip down their home and, and build something new uh, instead of putting up another single family home uh, in places like Portland, where we have large urban areas, you can put in a fourplex. In places that are rural, so we're thinking, um, I was going to say like Albany or Corvallis, but they're growing rather quickly. Sure. But rural areas, you can put in duplexes. And then in uh, really far flung areas that might not even be large enough to have an urban growth boundary, for example. Uh, they have no requirement whatsoever because they're not facing, in a lot of ways, they're not facing uh, the housing affordability issues that our, our urban areas are. So these are state laws? Yeah. So what the state did is uh, they, they passed this law and they said that every single city has to change their comprehensive plan and their zoning laws to, to match uh, House Bill 2001. And that has to be done by June of 2022. So right now, um, there is a, a whole group of people, professionals from planning and architecture and policy, who are writing the rules for that policy. When the state writes a policy, they say, this is what we want done and this is our intention, but we're not putting any details into this. We have to move on and write other laws. We're going to have somebody else put together the specific language. And so that's happening right now. Uh, some cities can get on board with a law and write their, their own uh, zoning laws that are compliant. And for the cities that, that don't have that capacity, maybe they don't have a full-time planner or they just have one planner who 
who handles everything in the city. Uh, in that case, the state is putting together what we refer to as a model ordinance or something that a small city could just look to uh, the state for a plug and play option. So in your opinion, how much of a difference can ADUs uh, make, you know, accessory dwellings, if, if, you know, if people are able to have, what do they call them, like uh, uh, mother-in-law housings or whatever, you know, like the little extra house behind your house kind of thing? How much of a difference can that kind of stuff make? Yeah, accessory dwelling units are great. Um, and it's important to note that House Bill 2001 not only had the provision to build these dense buildings like uh, fourplexes and duplexes, but it also included provisions for the accessory dwelling units like what you're talking about. And just to back up, I, I think most people are familiar with this, but it's worth noting um, an accessory dwelling unit is basically what we think of as a tiny home mm -hmm. that has a fixed foundation. So you put it in your backyard uh, maybe you build an entire village, something similar to Square One Villages uh, here in Lane County. This is different from a tiny home on wheels or a foe is what we call them. A tiny home on wheels uh, is still at this point in time classified as uh, an RV. So that's not uh, falling under House Bill 2001. So getting at your question though with ADUs, they can make an impact. So what we're saying is that we're giving homeowners the ability to build these in their backyards. So there's around 40,000 or so uh, single family zoned properties in the city of Eugene. I can use that for a good example. Not everybody who owns one of those lots is gonna want to put in an accessory dwelling unit. For those who do, they're going to do it for a number of different reasons. It might be, you mentioned the mother-in-law suite. Um, they might want to save money and have Aunt Alice live in the backyard. Sure, or, or a have. college, or, a col you know, I have two kids, stepsons that are college age. And for them, it's like if they're at Lane, ideally they would be at home, you know? So if we had a, a place for them, you know, we have uh, our lots are subdivided where we live. Mm -hmm. So behind us, is an empty lot that's just all it is is blackberry bushes. And every day we look at blackberry bush, blackberries coming through our fence and we're like, gosh, I want to buy that lot. You know, and obviously in the economic climate of today with me uh, not working because of the shutdown, that's not even feasible. But down the road, we, we will get back on our feet as far as it goes and, and everybody will prevail past this. <clears throat> that, that gets me to my next uh, question. And I kind of had referenced it before and I want to go into it a little bit deeper the effects of COVID-19, both politically and economically. I want to remind people again, I, I kind of mentioned it and then I went off track. Chris McAllister, who's running for, for city council in Springfield, he'll be on, on the Spent the Rent podcast uh, on Tuesday. And he's doing, like I said, he's got the homeless shelter at the Memorial Building. And then also the fairgrounds has a shelter as well. Is that, is that still going? As far as I know, yeah. And this is really good because... For homeless people, doing this with social distancing is very difficult. And we kind of mentioned that before. So the political and economic uh, uh, fallout from this is going to be massive. One of my biggest fears is that politically, local governments, the revenues because of the taxes that have been lost because people are unemployed are going to be gone. So that is a big fear of mine that some of these things that, that you know, especially in Eugene where homelessness is is I mean, we have some of the highest 
per capita homelessness in the nation. And I'm just, I'm, I'm worried that local government is going to be decimated to the point that what there, there's, there's not much that they can actually do. So that's another thing with the ADUs, the accessory dwellings, that it gives it, it sounds like it gives it to the homeowner to where they can then do their part. Is that true? You know, so it's not just the city government that's like, okay, let's only build new properties that these people can then invest in, 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 you know, an accessory dwelling on their, their property, like individual homeowners. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up uh, the government funding piece because that's very important and closely related to this particular issue. So uh, there's something called system development charges, and this is the fee that you have to pay to connect to sewer and water and have somebody come out and take a look at that and, and go through the entire code review process uh, at the city level. Now, it's important to note that the city doesn't have a lot of places to get revenue besides their number one is uh, tax revenue, so property taxes. Other places are things like system development charges. The problem is though that those system development charges can become extremely expensive, several thousand dollars, making it almost impossible and in many cases literally impossible for a homeowner to afford to put an accessory dwelling unit uh, on their lot. We see cities like Portland who have reduced and in some cases waived those fees for different groups. Uh, the city of Springfield tries to do things like that as well. And, and the city of Eugene even uh, has a pool of money where nonprofit applicants who are providing housing for people who are really uh, in a needy situation, they're going to build some, some transitional or even some permanent supported housing on a lot they own or they're going to buy they can apply for waivers for system development charges as well. Um, the problem is that there's not a lot of money to go around and the city really needs those funds. And this gets back to policies that we passed in the 1990s, which reduce the amount of property tax revenue that cities can get uh, from property owners. And so what's, what's happened here is we have this housing crisis. We have this really great tool we can use, this accessory dwelling unit tool, but we also have this financial barrier uh, sure. that sort of pits these, these homeowners who would like to build something against the city who doesn't really have a lot of other places to get revenue from. Where does the money, what does the money go towards? Like the fees, you know? So if somebody wants to, like the permit process or what, what does the money go to? So the money goes towards um, serving the public. It goes into, uh, as far as I'm aware, it goes into our general fund. I don't know if, that there is sure. any specific line item in the budget where system development charges actually go into and fund a specific policy. And yeah, that's, the, that's the case with, with lots of different revenue sources uh, that come from taxes and other places, primarily from taxes, is the city then uses that uh, money as a big pool of money that they then allocate to different line items. Sure, right. Yeah, so that's difficult. I know that in back during the recession of 2008, and I was cutting hair, I was talking to people. Now, this is a business end of it, not a housing end of it, but it's similar. That people were talking about uh, trying to open a business that would create 2,000 whatever X amount of jobs in Lane County. And the amount of money that Lane County would want for the permit is astronomical. So the same permit for a warehouse in Detroit, you know, for example, was like, 
I'm just throwing a random number, but it was like 70, 80 bucks. And in, in, in Lane County, it's like three grand just for the permit to break ground. And so those fees and those kind of things, it's like, well, where is that going? It's a really, it's a really tough thing because I believe in social services and I believe in helping people, but you need to make sure that the taxation is actually helping those people. So there has to be checks and balances. There has to be some kind of auditor that's looking into that. I know that that's something that, that a couple of the candidates of secretary of state have talked about Mm -hmm. is, is auditing these programs to make sure that the money is actually going to the things that it's designed to help and not just slush funds or making sure that the potholes are fixed on the mayor's drive home, (laughs) you know? So, yeah, so that's tough. Uh, Well, you know, this is, this is awesome, Thomas. I appreciate you doing this and talking to me. Uh, Housing is definitely the number one issue. And I, and we had this scheduled and it was a little bit, you know, altered. We had this scheduled months back and you had gotten a hold of me and I'm so glad you did because I might've forgot because things are so out of the way, out of, out of the norm. You're going to do it. You were going to come and be here in person. And, and hopefully when this thing is all over, then I can have you on again and we can talk a little bit more thoroughly in person. I kind of prefer the face-to-face interviews. Uh, for one, the audio quality is a lot more clear and it's just, it's just more personal, you know, and it's something that I, I kind of miss that interaction. All of us are going a little crazy right now. How are you doing with this? Now you're working, but you're doing it 100% remotely, right? Are you basically just staying at home? Yeah, so I'm fortunate. Um, I I do research at the University of Oregon and I uh, co-teach at the University of Oregon as well. So all of that is happening on Zoom right now. Yeah, so Zoom has been really cool and I'm working out some kinks. Uh, New webcam, I'm actually using my iPhone. I was going to keep that a secret. But, but, uh, so there's some, so there's some new things. I want to mention one thing. Uh, one of my sponsors, J.R. Ewing on in my, again, in my sponsors page of the website, strpod.com slash sponsors. You can click on his little business card on there. And if you're looking to buy a home, so we're talking about housing, he sells houses. He's my best friend from high school. I've known him since we were about 13 years old. And so he's one of my sponsors and you can check that out. Also, if you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can go to strpod.com slash sponsors. And I want to give a special thank you to the, all the people that have donated money. Um, I'm not going to list names because they know who they are, but their donations have been super gratefully appreciated. That's keeping me going. Sometimes even a small donation to the podcast to me can, can, you know, it may not be a life-changing amount of money, but the, the mindset that it puts on me, I can be really kind of struggling because I still have not gotten accepted on the unemployment stuff. And, there's no sign of when we're going back to work as a barber. And sometimes even a $10 donation, I get this little alert and it's like, you have received a donation. I'm like, Ooh, someone cares, you know, you know, and now there's that care emoji on Facebook too. So that's life changing <laughs> No, but well, Thomas Fiorelli, thanks a lot. And, uh, you know, I definitely want to recommend people look up Yimby in Lane County. Is there any resources that you really like to utilize that people should know about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would recommend that that folks look up um, the the feasibility study that I was referencing earlier, which is called the TAC report. It's really important to understand, you know, a couple of things that they point out. There's up to a thousand people houseless in Lane County uh, on any given night. Uh, that's that's a big number that it points out. There are 137,000 units that we do not have that's essentially families who need homes who don't have them across the state of oregon in total these are some of the numbers that the tac report uh identifies 
And it really brings to light not only the issue we're facing, but also maybe recommend some ways that we might be able to get a handle on it now. So check out the TAC report, um, read it. It's, it's definitely a valuable piece of information to understand. Is that something that people could just Google the TAC, T-A-C, TAC report? Yeah, that's a really great question, actually. It's, um, it's on the Lane County website. Let me just grab the exact name of it. Maybe so, you should just, how about, how about just share, you, when we get done talking here, you can just send me the link and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. So that would be really good. Uh, well, you know, Thomas Fiorelli, this is really cool. And I can tell just by looking at you that you definitely need to come see me soon. As soon as we open, you need a haircut. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm keeping it all under a, a, a ton of products. So yeah, I'll definitely see you. Soon. I, I, I appreciate you not taking drastic measures and start cutting it yourself or doing whatever. And I also appreciate you not messaging me and be like, can I come into your house and you can cut my hair during a, during a shutdown? You know, you're uh, bless their heart, the people that have, but it's really frustrating to me when they have, because they message me and they're like, can I get a haircut at your house? And I'm like, absolutely not. Do you understand that this is a health risk? So wait, Pat, are you saying that uh, getting my hair cut isn't worth risking my life? No, no. Okay. And, and, the, and the lives of others? No. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and I understand where people are coming from. And some of it, I, I'm not going to complain because some of the people that I've reached out, it was really awesome to talk to them. But there's been a few that it, I had one person message me and wanting a haircut. And he literally was like, I thought we were homies, bro. And I'm like, oh, really? So me not breaking the law and risking my career, that makes me not your homie? <laughs> you know, so... Anyways, we're going to end this. This is a treat. So uh, self-esteem, but Willie is what I used to go by with my music. And now I've trans I've transitioned into Patty Rose, but because of the shutdown, a good friend, Cesar Morales, he's a DJ had posted on Facebook. He's like, anybody interested in having me remix their songs, send me your vocal track. So I sent him one from Don't Look Back, which is probably my most popular song under the name Self-Esteem But Willie. It's featuring Josh Martinez. So this is, uh, we're going to end it with a song. This is me, Self-Esteem But Willie, remixed by Cesar Morales, featuring Josh Martinez. This is Don't Look Back. Thomas Fiorelli, thanks a lot for doing this. Thanks for having me. Us. We disgrace the deceit and empty space found between us You know in your heart there is no going back But you can't find a start to your battle track path A machete to the landscape Clear your mental dreamscape Good is what you're calling her to feel like a victim You need to stop calling her the choices now you picked them Puff your chest out and push on to the next bout of depression As the isolation is a safe space But it leaves you with a pretty sour taste If you wallow in it She's hollow only in it for herself Let her go break the heart of somebody else
toll against all the books that get cooked. My mom says, how you doing, son? I say good, but I'm not. Maddie's a weirdo. Red flags, unprepared, scared, fear your fear, though. Even though I gave you money, time, and effort. It never filled a hole in your soul, no, it never. I never thought I'd net out when I got grown. Become a better person and an unknown. Reinvent the be and end all of that, I'm free. Who the fuck wants to be 40 and alone? Recording in a room. Bitch, I need a 40 and alone. I'm calling and I text you, please pick up the phone. Please ease the teasing. These knees are weakened. I don't appreciate your proposals and decent. Yeah, you fucking sexy, you got hot girl problems. You also got demons and goblins. I feel pressure in the way you chase pleasure. I cannot rap with you, MC Escher. I mean, I measure my manhood and be what I say. I've been bad and I am good and I mean what I say. I love you and I hate you and you know this. There were other choices. But bitch, you chose this.